I think building out of the gate and expecting delivery and success in the DOD or IC as a market is a long shot. If you expect to grow and scale at the speed of a software startup, I don't think it's going to happen. What's up? I'm Tyler Sweat. Cue the dramatic music. This is All Quiet on the Second Front, a podcast where boring conversations around defense tech and national security come to die. Ready to get weird and learn some cool shit about emerging tech and the government? I thought so. Let's fucking go. This is a Soul Fire production. All right, what's up, everybody? Uh, welcome to another episode of All Quiet on the Second Front, the podcast where boring shit goes to die. I am your host, Tyler Sweat, and uh, we've gone inside the house for this next one, and I'm pretty excited. Uh, most of you know sort of my right hand in global domination, uh, TJ Rao. So we're going we're gonna to have a talk about, about transitioning from the military, about alternate pathways, about sort of coming home to defense tech, about you know, maybe demystifying some of the bullshit. Uh, we won't go, we won't go yeah. full send today, but we'll go, we'll go parts of the way there. Um, and just overall advice for folks that are trying to come in and trying to think through. So one of the things I've, I've tried to start keying in on is, Hey, and I saw it, you know, I was just up at MIT for the MIT sort of Harvard, um, sort of like vets security conference and the amount of folks who are trying to find the way into defense tech. Yep. I think it's caught me off guard. The fact that there are some pathways right now is tremendous because I just like bebopped my way into this by accident and was like, oh, yeah, no, I definitely made to meant to make that left turn. Right. Like Ferdinand's driver. Yep. Um, so I want to start want to go into a little bit of your background, uh, give everybody sort of the once over the moon on you sort of military and your first train, your transition out of the military, kind of what that looked like. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I did about seven years in the army as an infantry officer by trade. Um, kind of got to the point that I think is a natural inflection point for, for most folks in uniform, um, where could have stayed in, could have gotten out. There's a bunch of options on the table when you're, you're at that juncture in your career. I think for me, uh, and for my family kind of situation, wanted the army to be a chapter in the book, didn't want it to be the entire book. Um, so made the decision to transition late 2019. Um, and it, we've joked about this before, but I think the only transition hypothesis I had at the time was to get about as far away from defense and industry as I, as I possibly could. Um, I think it's easy when you're on the inside to get a little bit disenfranchised with foreign policy overall, defense as an industry and kind of what it looks like, uh, from inside the house. Uh, so made the transition to a Fortune 200 commercial real estate company called Jones Lang LaSalle. Uh, they had just stood up their nascent uh, technology business unit um, and were putting together uh, beyond just their corporate venture capital fund, which had been around for a couple of years at the time, to formal technology business unit, corporate strategy, corporate development, everything you'd kind of expect wrapped around, you know, a fully functioning BU in a Fortune 500 company. Yeah, so you get super far away right? You're happy doing commercial real estate stuff. And all of a sudden she comes crawling back and come back to defense tech. Uh, talk to me about sort of the, the decision. I know it was a challenging one because it took fucking forever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but talk to me about that a little bit. Yeah. I think it was, it was two things. Um, first kind of, you know, industry agnostic 
defense, commercial real estate, whatever it is, um, there are a few industries out there where software has not eaten the world yet and software has not taken over. Um, and so it's kind of easy to identify, hey, these are good places for startups. These are good places to build and grow new technologies, new capabilities and deliver them to an industry and an ecosystem that doesn't really have that capability yet. Um, second was my experience at, at JLL Technologies. It was easy to see even early there that all of the leadership and really the, the big success stories from our chief strategy officer down through who ran the fund, they were all operators by trade. These were not folks that grew up in investment banking or management consulting. These folks all cut their teeth in startups. They built companies from scratch. They knew how to scale. They knew how to get to exit velocity. And ultimately, those are kind of the skills you need to grow a company, yep. uh, especially in a highly regulated industry like defense or commercial real estate. So I think I quickly realized that I wanted to go cut my teeth and I wanted to go be a true operator in an early stage company and learn some of the lessons the hard way. Um, and then defense was, of course, a place that we're always interested in as disenfranchised as I think we can get with some of our experiences over the years. It's impossible to not be passionate about what we're doing and how a strong defense ecosystem in America makes the world a better and safer place. Um, and to be part of building a company, trying to drive that forward, that was, uh, that was an easy decision. Yeah. And I, uh, to anyone listening, uh, a reminder, right? So I found TJ's resume probably a year and a half before he joined the team. And it was interesting because it was high performing, high performing, high performing, a complete 180 in terms of industry, but still high performing without a grad school, without some like really weird connector. Um, and that to me was sort of an indicator of something really, really interesting. I tried to convince two other early stage tech CEOs to hire TJ as the chief of staff. Cause I was like, this dude will solve any fucking problem you want. And they were like, oh, that's not the right fit. It doesn't have the right fucking words on the resume. I was like, yeah, hey, but like in order to be successful, these three jobs, you have to have all of these intangibles, right? My hypothesis has always been, hey, I can, I can train you on the easy shit, right? I can teach you how to build things. I can teach you how to sell things. I can't teach the intangibles. I can't teach the work ethic. I can't teach the character. I can't teach the intensity and all of that. Um, so a reminder to everybody out there, fucking resumes, uh, is useful, but it's, it's useful as a, like an input, not, not the end all be all. You can still break in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so sort of drawing on the passion for the mission, the ability to build things that are awesome in defense. Um, I think, how do you balance that? the passion and sort of what we talked about, sort of the, the disenfranchisement, whatever, however you say yeah. that word, that's, that's a 30 cent word. I only go up to quarters. <laughs> um, that sort of historical, I mean, that's our upbringing, right? Like with where we are today, where it's, Hey, I'm trying to do something awesome. This matters. The business matters, but I still see a ton of bullshit out there. Yeah. Uh, What's that, what's that balance like, especially, especially down sort of at the, at the tactical edge, so to speak in a company? Yeah, it's hard. Um, I think it's really difficult to be optimistic in this space, frankly. Um, there's a great data point that came out of uh, Silicon Valley defense group that if you aggregate the top 100 defense tech startups that are in play today, you include SpaceX, Anderl, 
Rebellion, all these big companies, um, the overall DOD revenue that they're actually bringing in is less than one to two billion dollars, yep. which is under a quarter of a percent of the entire DOD's budget. Um, and those are that's SpaceX. That's these are huge. Yeah, companies. mainly that's SpaceX and Anderil. And empirically. Uh, there really aren't any data points of successful defense tech startups that don't have billionaires as founders yep. and really placement and access that that a normal startup can't build and go execute with. So, yeah. I mean, it's really hard to be optimistic. Yeah. Um, but you balance that with, frankly, you know, being on the ground and in the trenches and seeing the success, seeing companies small and big deliver technologies especially with what we're seeing kind of in Eastern Europe right now, very real capabilities going directly to a conflict to support kinetic effects. That is invigorating. Yeah. And I think on the optimistic side of the house, that's, that's a key kind of indicator of what might come forward if we can continue to see the congressional and, you know, Pentagon level buy-in for, for new technologies. Yeah. I think one of the, one of the talking points I've seen a lot um, as I'm out talking to investors and founders and sort of everybody in between is I don't think anyone knows how long it's going to last for, but we've got some like unique alignment right now Yep, on the Hill and in the building. And it almost, and again, I'm going to eat my words on this. I say this every time that I'm about to say this. Um, it's almost like Congress has taken the lead on some of the like near peer peer, great power type stuff. Um, I don't know, maybe they just got tired of insider trading. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, I, don't, I don't know, but it's an interesting time where I almost feel like the Hill is way more opinionated than the building Yeah. on matters of national security. And I, I don't know if that's just like a massive indictment on the current sort of defense department leadership, or is it just... Hey, maybe I'm starting to get like a younger and the GWAT sort of generation is flowing into con. I think we've got three year group 04 West Pointers all just came into Congress at the same time uh, with Pat Ryan, Wes, and uh, I forget the third. Sorry. Um, what is that? You know, you've, you've sort of talked about some of that optimism and some of that pessimism, you know, coming out of sort of a high op tempo cutting edge unit when you look at that now what does that what does that make you think like what do you what do you think it is you look at the hill taking the lead in national security over dod i think or am i right to think that i think logically logically it makes sense um if you think everybody in the building i mean they've been inundated in you know what we'll call kind of a small skirmish or a counterterrorism fight for the better part of almost 25 years now so it's hard to ask them to make just really a fundamental pivot on where the DOD sits for great power competition. Yeah. Um, from kind of the special operations community, it's going to be very interesting to see how these organizations kind of shift what their mission has been for a really long time and really like foundational elements of those units and their non-commissioned officers or their senior NCO leaders. They've really only known one type of combat. They've only known one type yep. of training. And there's going to be a, a really dramatic shift. And I think what they're preparing for, for the future. Yeah. We're going to leave that and not click into that. Yeah. That is a, like 40 beer rabbit hole. That's a deep one. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Pulling that back up. Sorry. It was a philosophical wandering. Yeah. Um, talk to me about uh, 
challenges of sort of building effective, high-performing teams in defense tech, building them at speed, building them with the need for scale almost out of the gate, and right to the, the next five or six companies that are about to go through some hyperscale. How should they think about building sales teams? What lessons have you learned? That What mistakes have we made that someone can just avoid making? What's that look like? Yeah, I think it, it's a combination of both your overall go-to-market strategy and then the personnel and org that you align against that strategy. So on the overall go-to-market, you know, there's, there's so many doors for entry point into defense and national security. You've got DIU and Incutel and AFWorks and innovation foundries popping up all over the place. Uh, but as a company and a new technology, you have to be able to see what's on the other side of that door there is a level of scale that you have to get beyond a, an SBIR phase one or phase two. You really need to contemplate uh, what is my path to a production level contract? What is my path to a program of record? If you don't get to that point, you're never going to really reach enterprise delivery or scale as a company in this, uh, in this market. And then on the personnel side, I think you need to treat it from a sales team perspective as a highly regulated industry. And we've talked about this a lot where there's just mysticism about selling to the DOD or selling to the Intel community or even selling to federal civilian agencies. But at the end of the day, you know, we're not going to build a new piece of software and go try to sell it to Goldman Sachs or Johnson and Johnson tomorrow. That is a highly nuanced, highly regulated industry that is very difficult to transact software in. Yep. And if you treat the DOD or the IC as the same kind of market from a template, then you can then go hire and source the right people that can go transact in that market. Talk to me about uh, understanding personas in defense. Because I think people people will hear what you just said and be like, yeah, fucking A, it's regulated. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, oh, I've got to sell like I'm regulated. And you're like, all right, cool. Like, who the fuck are you selling to? And I think a lot of people don't like fundamentally misunderstand the roles and responsibilities and like who can do what sort of across the spectrum in the department. So walk me through that. Yeah, I think, um, or what we found success in is mapping kind of a persona stakeholder map the same way that you would map enterprise B2B SaaS. So if I'm going to sell a piece of, a piece of SaaS to a Walmart or a Target, I understand that there's an end user that is gonna receive some economic value from my application it's either going to make their workflow easier or it's going to bring down the time they spend on a certain task. But the difference between that end user and legal and procurement and executive decision makers, these enterprise SaaS teams are, are phenomenal at, I mean, what used to be much of an art in kind of enterprise SaaS sales is now very much a science and you can map that out through and through. I think you have to bring the same mindset to the DOD and understand that there's even probably a greater disconnect from the end users that you're going to be delivering a capability to, whether that's an organizational unit or a staff function at a COCOM level, and then map that end user in demand, not just through procurement or a program of record or contracting or where you're going to find the dollars, but also to requirements that are being published by a certain PEO, wherever the governing body is for that organization. If the requirements don't map what you're selling, you're gonna have a bad time when yep. you reach the end of the road that you then probably spent six, eight, 12 months in a sales cycle in. And with a sales cycle that long and a stakeholder map that's that really convoluted and nuanced, 
if you're not precise from kind of day one, it's going to be a challenge, Yeah, which is also, you know, kind of the second challenge of selling in this market, particularly from a software perspective is that, that that's highly antithetical to modern software capability <laughs> development and the life cycle of how you would want to have an MVP of an application, get into the hands of as many users as possible, get a feedback loop established between your customer, product and engineering and sales, like and then the rapidly, yeah. rapidly iterate Fly on that to back. make an incredible application oh. on the back end. You have to kind of get across that valley without that feedback loop, yep. which is really challenging. Yeah, and I think that's, I think a lot of people assume like an SBIR phase two is going to be like that, and like it ends up more not more often than not that's that's hard. Often, it ends up being like a little science projecty, and you've got like yep. a well intentioned like sponsor or two, and it's like two folks, and they're like, yes, yeah, I. I'd like it to go left. You're like, yeah. well, does the fucking Air Force want it to go left or do you want it to go left? And there's this massive disconnect there, but that leads to that leads to another topic, right? Like, as, I mean, you and I both get called by early stage tech companies all the time who are trying to figure out what does defense look like? How do I think about it? And I mean, you Google fucking innovation in defense right now and probably 50 organizations show up uh, I think they all signal that they've got pathways and right. There's one side of the fence that like, Hey, more involved, like Mo better. Yeah. Um, like the other side is like, all right, cool. So the un uninitiated are now choosing between 50 different doors and 48 of them are guaranteed death. Yep. But you're just not going to know you die. You're just going to think you're in a hot tub until you're boiled. Yep. Um, two of them are the right ones, but those two change, right? Like sometimes it's DIU, sometimes it's AFWorks, sometimes it's InQtel. Like in theory, at some point, it'll be the Army Applications Lab or AFC. Like, yep. what, what advice do you give folks on how to match and understand and also how to separate signals and noise and just like all of the bullshit? The well-intentioned, like I don't mean, I don't mean to say Folks are malicious or nefarious. Yeah. It's well-intentioned. I think there's not a recognition from the department that by saying everyone's innovating, you've effectively made it impossible for commercial industry to come engage with you because they have no idea where to go. Yep. Um, how do you help people sort of think through that? What do you tell folks on matching, on sort of sniffing out the BS, essentially qualifying? Yeah. Um, it's a difficult qualification process. Uh <laughs> I think, especially for folks that are new to selling in this market, you have to understand that that a lot of these demand signals don't actually mean that there's transaction authority on the other side. Um, so you have to separate where are the demand signals and then where am I actually going to be able to plug this in and drive scale? Uh, and we talk about this a lot where there's a lot of front doors. There's the DIUs, the AFWorks, all these places where you can kind of start. But if you don't have a sponsor on the back end, who's willing to bring you in and willing to adopt you at scale, it's going to be a challenge. So I think you have to be very selective actually about if you have a couple different champions or a couple different like strong demand signals, which ones you end up investing your cycles in. And then the last part, I, I don't think we've figured out what last mile delivery looks like beyond prototyping and R and D and getting onto the network and scaling. And 
you can't expect as a commercial software company or dual use company that that responsibility is anybody but yours. That is, you need to own that from that phase to production and you need to manage it all the way through. Um, I think through advertisement or communication from a lot of these organizations, it seems like you're going to have kind of, you know, uh, a guide through what that looks like. And you're just not these organizations as well-intentioned and, and frankly, incredible. Some of the people that are in them, they cycle out every two years, priorities, requirements change, external conflicts and politics are always going to affect this market. So if you're not driving that internally with your own people and your own team, then you're not going to get off that Island or across this great Valley of death that everybody talks about. Yeah. Um, one piece of advice you give a new sort of defense tech founder who calls you and says, Hey, I'm thinking about thinking about doing tech and I'm thinking about going to national security. What do you tell them? Oh man, stay away. That's, um, I was, yeah. that's my fucking answer. I'm like, Oh, you should definitely not do that. And I, it, we have these conversations every week with new yeah. founders, new entrants to the market. Um, I think the playbook of building a successful commercial business, you know, and this is going against what, what some of our friends say, but building a successful commercial business that can float the capital expenditure that's required for this market, the long sales cycle, depending on what you're building and you're selling could be highly capital intensive for the DOD as a customer, having a successful commercial business and really doing the actual dual use play is my recommendation for most folks. I think building out of the gate and expecting delivery and success in the DOD or IC as a market is, is a long shot. Um, certainly if you, if you expect to grow and scale at the speed of a software startup, I, I don't think it's going to happen. Um, that's a hard sell. No, I agree. I mean, it's one of those, it's one of those where unless you've got like very specialized tech or unique access and relationships and not just like, Oh, hey, I was on the 10th mountain. I know a bunch of idiots at Fort Drum. Like you actually know how the fucking machine works and a hill game. Yes. Uh, I don't think there's a way to do it in a meaningful way. That'll justify. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You can build a great business. 100%. But you're not going to hit scale at the software company kind of expectations. You're going to have to do the right type of fundraise out of the gate to sort of manage those expectations that, hey, there is tremendous upside. Yep. But it's not going to be, you can't acquire users at the speed you would as a commercial SaaS or a B2C play. Yeah. It's just not possible. No shot. Awesome. Um, all right. So, I mean, you've watched me film enough of these that you know I have a structured last question. <laughs> um, so when it's all done, um, you know, I tell people I want to end up sort of in the mountains, outdoor kitchen, right? Big old uh, little chef frock on, apron. Um What's that look like for you, the family? You know, I figure by then you've got a bunch of little Tylers running around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hi, Laurel. <laughs> All named Tyler. Yeah, every one of them. Boys just and like, girls. Just like George Foreman. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think, you know, I'm I'm quite a hippie at heart. Um, although I spent a lot of time in uniform and bounce around the world. Um, what that looks like for me is living in the mountains, likely in Colorado, where I'm skiing in the Wolves winter. And and mushrooms. Big game hunting in, in the fall. Um you know, our time on this earth is pretty short, yep. actually. Uh, so maximizing time in the outdoors and in nature and living with my family, kind of true American freedom style. Fucking a. That's that's the dream. Love it. I love it. Well, hey, brother, thanks for uh, 
One, thanks for being part of the team. And two, thanks for taking a little bit of time here and, uh, and doing the dance on All Quiet. Thanks so, for having me. Appreciate you. Wow, look at you. You made it to the end. Thanks for listening. Hope you learned something. Don't forget to leave a passive-aggressive review. It wouldn't be a podcast without some show notes. So check them out to learn more about me, Second Front. Stay weird. <laughs>